Film is a sort of dreamscape. You get this kind of groundless passion. That's an interesting phrase. In this podcast, we join artist R.I.P. Jermaine and guest speaker Amani Mason-Jordan immediately after the artist made amendments to his exhibition, Jesus Died for Us, We Would Die for Dudas. Amani Mason-Jordan is an interdisciplinary writer, artist, editor and curator interested in poetics and performance, whose recent projects Treadmill Work in Progress took place at Somerset House Studios and Aspen Art Museum. Atlantic Railton Live with Aim Bailey at Serpentine Pavilion. Welcome Note in a Welcome Speech with Lavita Sivungu at Gasworks in Spike Island and Sensing the Planet at Serpentine. Imani is the author of the pamphlet Objects Who Testify, as well as numerous articles, reviews, essays, poems, plays, and love letters, and is also one half of Languid Hands, a London based artistic and curatorial collaboration with DJ and filmmaker Rabs Lansquat. R.I.P. Jermaine is, of course, our current exhibiting artist at ICA, whose recent exhibitions include Cubit 30, a group show presented by Cubit at Victoria Miro, the solo shows Shimmer at Two Queens in Leicester, four bedrooms with an ensuite, a garage and a garden in a nice neighbourhood at VO Curations, Dead Yard at Cubit and Giddy Up at Peak, amongst many other projects and exhibitions. R.I.P. Jermaine was also the recipient of an ICA Image Behaviour Production Grant, resulting in his new film Mew, which premiered at ICA in 2022. This talk was recorded live at the ICA on the 22nd of March 2023. Enjoy the recording. Any questions? <laughs> that quote unquote secret basically encapsulates all the layers involved with the show in terms of like you know the tension between visibility and invisibility and you know sort of navigating the space and sort of taking on what you actually see in the space and when you sort of get a clue into the underlying functions of the space, then it leads you onto a different path and actually understanding what you're actually sitting yourself in. And, um, yeah, so I'll take you through the sort of journey on how to get to that that last piñata. So basically with the first piñata, you know, you kind of have to break that fourth wall with, you know, behavioural etiquette that comes with a gallery space, you know, you're not supposed to touch things, you know, everything's meant to be precious, you know, artworks that need to be observed, you know, but fuck that. There's like, I'm interested in artworks having a half-life to them, you know, an artwork can start a certain way and, you know, through the timeline of where it's exhibiting, it can end up in a different way that sometimes is out of my control. Like, when that piñata has been in that space, I mean, it's there to be smashed. So if someone had smashed it, I'd have to take that L. And if they were just like, you know, um, you know, managed to figure out all the different clues and such, I was like, boy, you deserve it. If you, if you managed to figure out all that stuff. But, you know, also what could have happened is someone could have smashed it and then just took the mallet and the business card and not even pieced things together from there which would have just been the nature of how it panned out. So, yeah, so if I explain it, so you smash the piñata, obviously it has the business card in it, which has the original 
image of the place in St. Lucia where I came across that DIY shop um, that had the Hush um, graphic on it. And on the other side, it said opposites attract, which was supposed to then lead you to look across the room to the other side and use a mallet, which then is also, you know, asking the audience to like really take a leap of faith and, you know, and smash a wall down, which takes a lot, which is also why in the end, the prize for doing that was me offering to make that person an artwork because I felt like you deserve that. Like, you've really crossed boundaries in a way that really is asked of an audience member. And I have to respect that. And I have to, you know, acknowledge someone really taking the time to, you know, bed themselves in the space and pay attention to what they're actually looking at. Which is what the show's about, really. It's about these spaces that, especially in London, they're all over the gaff, that, you know... They look a certain way, and they're completely not that at all. There's so many spaces like this. I mean, these spaces here, they're based on real places that exist and are functioning and open right now. Um, I'm not going to bait out where they are. (laughs) I don't want those types to be odd to me. But, um, yeah, uh, that was kind of the essence of... um, Setting that challenge for the audience, you know. I like to play the trickster, what can I say? And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a circulatory moment as well because also behind there is a mural that was made with um, artist Marilyn Thompson um, before I even started making art. So for me, it's about, you know, having this full circle moment of, you know, Looking at a genesis point and acknowledging where I'm at now. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we're good. Hopefully, you heard all of that. <laughs> right. So, uh, there's um, there's a few things I think I want to say. Um, mm. I feel like asking questions about your work. It really depends on the day. Yeah. The mood. Yeah. Um, as well as the question, but. You said earlier that you were in a, um, a mood to answer questions, to yeah. kind of reveal some of these secrets. Yeah. But there are also some really important secrets in the show that are still being held onto by, by you for good reason. And yeah. I'm wondering, you, you spoke a little bit about being a trickster uh-huh. and about asking audiences for quite a lot, but you also kind of give a lot. There's this, like, push and pull in the experience of witnessing a show by you, a piece of work by you in a singular way. Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that energy. Yeah. um, I don't want to hold the audience's hand with anything because I don't believe that they're stupid. Like, everyone has all the faculties and intelligence to, you know to engage with the work. I don't want to have to explain everything to you. I'll give you clues because I feel that that's a duty to myself as well. If I'm asking you guys to, like, you know, bed yourself within these cultures and these topics that a lot of you, I'm expecting, have no idea about or feel completely alienated from it, I feel it's a bit irresponsible for me then to kind of hold 
cards to my chest. Um, and yeah, for me, that tension breeds like really interesting outcomes and stuff that I can't even really account for. So, you know, me just giving a little bit of clues to people can lead them down paths that I didn't even anticipate. And it, off- and it offers the chance and space for me to then have conversations with them where they bring up points about the work that I may not even have noticed or even really had thought about. But upon hearing them, I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And to me, that's the most important part about art making for me is, you know, I'm not trying to pedestalize myself in the sense of, like, I'm dictating to an audience or, like, I have, you know, omnipotent knowledge and I'm all-knowing and then I'm just bestowing a, a vat of information to you. That's not where I'm at with that. And I don't want to be at that point as an artist. You know, I use these works as sort of, you know, a breeding ground to, you know, investigate things that I'm sort of mystified by, that I have a lot of questions about. And, you know, I want to talk about this stuff. Um, I find it infinitely interesting. So, you know, I create these spaces to then sort of seek out others that are really interested about these things and then see if we can have a, a fruitful conversation about this stuff and and then, you know, from that, take on steps to, like, you know, find out more interesting things about this world. <laughs> One of the things that you've often said, yeah, about that curiosity that you have, that kind of fascination, but also the will to engage others in conversation feels like a really important part of your work. Like you're creating these spaces that you're fascinated by, but then it's the conversations really that come out of that work that is what drives you to kind of create these incredibly detailed, um, meticulous spaces. So this kind of tension of like giving, giving a lot or giving just enough to invite questions, but then also withholding. I think on the one hand, I agree with you that it is about not like uh, spoon-feeding people, but there's also this trickster element of Mm. not wanting, like making them, wanting to make people also work a little bit and to see what comes out of that. And what I've also noticed is that that feeling is sometimes quite a vulnerable feeling. Mm -hmm. Uh, for you but really for the audience of like I'm not sure how I'm meant to be here I'm not sure how I'm meant to engage and nobody is giving me any of the answers like there's a glossary but there's no explanation of like what this is or what this means or why there are these kind of constellation of objects together in one space so what what is the trickster part of that can you talk a little bit more about that I'm so anti-press releases. I hate <laughs> them to death. Like um, Admin. Yeah, I just... Oh, no, that's so jarring. Like, <laughs> and I just feel like that whole explainy aspect of the art world, it really limits an audience's um, experience. I mean, when this show opened and um, I had someone come in and I was, like, I was like, oh, welcome and all that stuff. And they were talking about how they felt about the show. And then they stopped themselves halfway and were like, well, why don't you tell me about the show? What what am I supposed to think about it? And I was like, I'm not going to answer that because that's not really the point. Like, even if 
the answers you give me have nothing to do with my intention behind making the works or what I made this show about, it's neither here nor there. If you're getting something out of it that is, you know, a side point or, you know, it, it breeds different types of conversations, that's just as valid. And in regards to, you know, I guess making the audience work to get the best out of the show, I like to have some fun. <laughs> you got, you got to have some fun. Um, and, you know, my whole life I've had to go through, like, having to learn things and sort of, you know, self-educate myself on certain things. You know, if I don't know something, I have to go to Google or I have to go to YouTube or I have to, like, you know, really use the resources at hand like a library or the internet or whatever to figure it out so I'm not going to give this all to you for free especially when it's about communities and social structures which have worked really hard to conceal themselves Mm -hmm. to me it kind of defeats the magic of those types of spaces and communities if then they're just revealed just very like flippantly to me um i think it's interesting where you may take a space like you know like a weed calf out of his element and then place it within a gallery space but then still make the audience have to jump through the hoops mm-hmm. that you would if you was going to a real weed calf so you know i'll bait up some place so Whitechapel, you know all them you know all them office spaces in Whitechapel. I used to walk past those for years and be like, you know, I used to be so jarred off by it because I was like, you know, just as a council, something to do with council, like there's tons of homeless people out there. Even if you can temporarily house them in there for like weeks on end or like a month or whatever, and then you do a cycle or whatever. These are like office spaces that are just sitting there and just not being used. No, 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 no. They are being used. (laughs) Those those are all weed calves that are like Albania Mafia weed calves. So, you know, you walk in there, you walk through the door, you go down a flight of stairs, it's like a bank vault, you have to take off your hats, you can't go in more than two people at a time, they'll think you're on stuff. You have to look up at CCTV cameras before they let you in. You then go up a flight of stairs, you have to buy stuff when you first get in there. You can't just sit down in there, um, which I got into a situation for that, but that's for another time. But um, yeah, you go in there and then it's like a, um, a social club. It's actually like a youth club. Basically, they have like computer games. They have, you know, Sabutio. Um, they have all sorts there and you can meet all types of people there. I've met lawyers there. I've met police there. I've met uni students there. I've met nurses there. You meet college students there. You meet everyone there. And that ultimately was what um, really piqued my interest about even investigating these types of spaces because obviously they sit outside of the law, but they're serving a part of the community which is really like algorithmic. Like it really pierces through like and it doesn't account for social class gender creed or whatever like everyone is going there so that means that there's a hole in society that isn't being fulfilled within conventional law whereas it is here and you know you may get i spoke to a friend um 
who's POC, and they said that they do, they go to these weed casts to get basically medicated for like their mental health issues because they don't want to deal with the NHS because of the racial biases that they've encountered. Um, I mean, even when I've gone to those weed casts, the last time I went to one, um, they knew I was an artist. So they were, <laughs> it was jokes, they were asking me for decor advice. Because <laughs> um, what they wanted to do is they were like, yo, you know, so I know you're an artist, but, you know, I'm trying to build out this workstation for the Liverpool Street bankers. So when they come, they can work in the stations and that means they can stay there and buy more stuff. So is this red swatch good or nah? And I was just like, <laughs> <All right. laughs> <This> <laughs> But to me, that um, it kind of also demystifies the sort of... I don't want to romanticise or even fetishise these spaces. They can be very dangerous. But there's also another side to it where, you know, you do meet people consistently after a while and build up relationships with them and such. And to me, that's really interesting. You know, we all are seeking out this space and have taken all these bendy paths to come to them um, and we're all sitting there and we're chilling, we're all hanging out and just, you know, hanging out. Um, and, you know, also when talking about finding these spaces, that's why you have the business cards. Um, you know, you have the QR code to then get the glossary and stuff like that because that's how you find out about these spaces. You know, you go down like Dalston or wherever, there isn't out. a press release. Yeah, yeah. No, for these no, spaces. No, 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 no at all. But they'll hand you a business card. But that will be dependent on how you carry yourself or who you are, which is another aspect of the show, you know, is about, you know, the the aspect of cultural gatekeeping. So, you know, with, I know I'm like going all over the place, but bear with me. Um, You're an artist. Yes. <laughs> But, you know, the reason why I've chosen to do a Hatton Garden Jewelers and, you know, a fake drug depot is because they're high and low versions of the same place. Um, you know, even just how you navigate them, how you come into contact with them, even the type of people that go to them. Same people that are going to these weekhouse are going to these Hatton Garden Jewelers. And, you know, through how I carry myself, I've managed to you know, access all of the areas of these spaces. You know, when I was first thinking about this show, um, I was like, I need to do some reconnaissance and go down Hatton Garden because I've never been there. Um, they all thought I was a rapper or a footballer just because of the way I was dressed, carrying myself. So as soon as I went in those places, they were showing me all, like, their exclusive jewellery. They were taking me to their VIP rooms because they thought I had money to spend. I wasn't going to tell them otherwise. <laughs> um but the point in that is, you know, it's a case of, you know, there's a phrase like, if you know, you know. And it, those spaces really operate on that mantra of, you know, they allow you to come in, but you've got to be the right type of person. And then you'll get access to it. And that's an interesting thing, especially as a black person, to, like, stand back and observe. Of being like, you know, this kind of gatekeeping that you can sort of really see from a bird's eye view and navigate through. I mean, the aspect of even doing a show based around Hatton Garden Jewelers is, 
you know, the advent of the UK drill scene and the wealth that's involved with that scene now. And it's like the first time we've seen like UK rap or rappers in general or like black musicians in general have this amount of wealth and then, you know, express it through the jewellery that they own to the point of where now the UK jewellery is considered better than the US jewellers. So now you would get US rappers coming over to the UK to get their jewellery made because our stuff is considered to be better. And, you know, being read in a specific way, but not actually being a participant of it. I know a lot about it, but to say, like, being an active participant, it's, it's a weird space to be in. So, you know, I wanted that excuse to, like, actually pierce through and see what it's like to be on the other side. I think there's also something that in what you're saying around, like, so a lot of stuff is projected onto you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's inaccurate. But it's not a passive experience because there are times when you lean into that or kind of um, create opportunities to exploit that for, like, good reason. Yeah. And I think that, like, in your in your work, you do that in a way that is about your personal experience, but it's also like extremely accessible and comes also back to this, to this kind of enjoyment of like fucking with people basically. (laughs) Um, And that all like rests on this kind of like double consciousness of like seeing yourself as you are, but also seeing yourself as an other or as, as something to be projected on. And so I'm like, interested in hearing from you about I don't know the the extent to which that that shape-shifting or that double consciousness that moving in and out of recognition um like is explored in in this exhibition because you said yourself that when you went to handguns or when you go to these places there's a level of projection on you which Mm -hmm. allows you to kind of engage and be recognized but you're also fronting yeah yeah i mean in this yeah (laughs) pretty much and like say a similar example of that where i'm talking about being read as like a rapper of football in the hatton gardens where i was talking just briefly earlier about the weed calf stuff like what was projected onto me where i'm saying this sort of behavioral etiquette of going into this weed calf and then having to buy something before you can sit down I actually bucked that trend because I didn't know. So my two friends that took me there, they went to the toilet and were like, oh, just go up because they forgot to tell me about the rules. So I just sat down and then no one, I was just chilling. And then my two friends came over and they're like, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, oh, you, you, you're not queuing. You didn't buy anything. I said, like, nah, like, usually they fuck people up. I was like, well, they ain't done nothing to me. So obviously because of my size and the way I'm carrying myself, they just didn't want that type of problem, which is where, you know, sort of the, I'm sort of then leaning into this accidentally, not even knowing where you're talking about, um, you know, this double consciousness of how to like navigate through these spaces and survive. I mean, when it comes to art making, I usually use the micro of, my personal experiences to then discuss the macro of like, you know, the systems that I want to investigate. 
So where you have the video game that I made, um, where I'm really talking about the precariousness of violent exchanges and how close you can be to death without even really understanding that. So you can have like a conversation with someone and you can say like in the game, there's points where you can say the same thing, but then there's a minute of difference. And that really can be the difference between life and death. And within that game, those exchanges are real conversations I've had with people and they're real near death experiences that I've had. So yes, it it's filtered throughout the whole show this tension between, you know, using personal experiences and then, you know, mining them to like then discuss bigger, you know, aspects of the world that I want to talk about. I mean, you know, that also comes in with the the jewelry. Yeah, I was gonna ask let's talk a little bit about <laughs> the other works in the show. Yeah. So upstairs there are kind of two main things that I want to talk to you about um, that are kind of like recurring. It's not the first time you've seen this in your work. So there's, on the one hand, Tupac two times. Um, And then there's also this kind of ongoing exploration of drill, music, drill culture. Um, So, yeah, maybe talk about Tupac first. Seeing as here he is. Yeah, there he is. Or is it him? Well, you know, <laughs> so what, what happened to him? <laughs> so basically, um, I'll start from the back and no, start from the end and come backwards. So basically, with the pendant, that's actually not supposed to. That's not supposed to look like that. The the anomalous actually refused to make him white, and and just like that's where that um, the WhatsApp chat is coming through. That's the jeweler letting me know that the guy was like, was showing me that she had said to him, he needs to be white. And he was like, cool. And then he's not. <laughs> he's some, he's mixed race, basically. He's light skinned. He's a light skinned. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and as a light skinned. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But, and it was this, yeah, it's like this weird sort of compromise. Okay, but hold on. Let's go back. Why do you want a white two-pack on a, on a oh, chain? Oh, okay, yeah. All right, then. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll go through that. Let's answers for us. Yes. <laughs> so basically, like Kamani was saying, that's not the first version of the white two-pack sort of icon that I've made, I've concocted. Um, you see the first version in the cabinet, which is the mask. And... Um, Basically, what I'd done for a show last year at uh, VO Curations is I had replicated a photo of Tupac in a business suit, but a white version. And what that came from was basically when Tupac had passed away in a sort of a proto-meme amongst black American women of what the perfect black male was, was Tupac in a business suit. Because, you know, Tupac as, a, as an icon was, you know, this beautiful, handsome man that was like really stood on his principles, was charismatic, you know, had energy for days and, you know, really was for black love and, you know, really fought for stuff on a justified principle. Plus, he came from a, a Black Panther lineage with his mum. 
but then the business suit side of it comes in that he could also operate within the Western world in the corporate society as such and flourish. So that was what was you say was the perfect black man. I mean, if you Google it, you see it come up all over the internet. Um, so the reason why I chose to then make a, a white Tupac version of that is really because I wanted to discuss what I was feeling was the end game for black culture. It's a warning. Um, you know, I usually use music as a good example for this. You know, you look at rock and roll and you see how it starts off with a, a Chuck Berry and a Little Richard. You Google the King of Rock and it's Elvis. You turn to some, you go to a black kid, a teenager, and you go, you know, techno's black music, right? They'll look at you like fucking alien and not realize it's from Detroit. Or you think about house music. You go to a house party. How many times do you see many black faces? And you don't really realize it's from Chicago, from a club called The Warehouse. You, you know, you go to hip-hop. It starts off in the South Bronx. Google hip-hop. Eminem is the first person that comes up. Terms like alternative R&B exists. What the fuck is that? Um, and then, you know, things like, you, you know, you have genres like jungle that literally have to rebrand themselves as drum and bass and have to strip the Caribbean elements out of the sign, the sound in order to exist because the police were shutting down all those raves for, you know, potential violence going on. And then, you know, even UK Drill now, you see it starts off in Angel Town Estate and Brixton Hill. And then, you know, the most popular rappers is H from Manchester, RD from Brighton and Central C from Shepherd's Bush, none of them are black. <laughs> so, you know, it's not to say that, you know, white people aren't allowed to be in these cultures or, like, you know, it's blasphemous that they want to, you know, involve themselves within these cultures. A lot of them do come from the same places. It's not about that, what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is, you know, society tends to always, you know, decide what they want to be their representation of, you know, black culture, and, you know, what what version of black culture gets to flourish tends to be non-black. So the reason why I made the white Tupac in a business suit and then this white Tupac Jesus piece is to really highlight what I feel like this society's version of how they want black culture to be is. And it's not a black version of it. And, um, but so, so the jeweler was absolutely not... Nah, he wasn't. He wasn't fucking with the white Tupac at all. He was not. I have it. no part of this. Which to me was a beautiful accident, because you know, to me that meant that what I was talking about, at least to me, was affirmed. It meant that you know, culture is really important to people. The authorship of culture is really important. You know, it's it's a thing to take on, like custodianship of these types of things. You know. Tupac is gone. He has no control over how his legacy is preserved. A lot of people think that because I made Dependent, that that somehow means I endorse it. Mm. Nah, I don't. Mm -mm. I think it's an ugly thing as well. I do. Mm -mm. It is. It's butters as hell. <laughs> it's like it's really wrong to look at. <laughs> Tupac was a beautiful, dark-skinned black man. Yeah, I mean, and, we, we were saying that actually the um, that refusal brings in another conversation of like, well, that's also not a good end game. No. 
that's, it's not. That's also a form of whitewashing. That's also mm-hmm. like reflecting the colorism mm-hmm. that, yeah. that happens to black culture. Yeah. And so on the one hand, you know, it was not the work that you wanted. But no. on the other hand, through this process, yeah. um, you know, you're, you're having these conversations that, that are fueling the work and refueling the work. Yeah. And w- one thing that I think at the opening you said, the white one is on the way, it's on its way. Yeah. But it's not here yet. And I'm, no. I'm, you know, I'm interested in the way that exhibitions can like shift and change after the opening yeah. and evolve, especially downstairs where people feel perhaps more able to touch things and move things around. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look the same. It has been moved by being in relationship, by being witnessed, by being uh, like touched and now um, destroyed, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the walls. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, just to circle back quickly, it was crazy when we were talking earlier about it that, you know, the enamelists had basically done a brown paper bag test on the on the on the jewelry the one drop of the pigment rule yeah exactly and then um you know to think about you know where you have these spaces and you know the audience is actively reshaping it i think that's exciting to me especially because then it at least at least gives me information about people that most likely have never entered these spaces Mm -hmm. how they may feel they would Mm -hmm enter these spaces and sort of, you know, engage with them. I really find it interesting that the cowrie shells on the seat keep on getting moved around. They do. Yeah. That's that's interesting to me because I'm usually like, they don't know what they're, they're messing with when they do that type of stuff. Well, what are they messing with? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that part of the installations, I've really held tight because... There's been a couple of people that have come to me about it and I've been like, okay, yeah, I really want to talk to you because you know what you're seeing. Because um, obviously I had done the film based on Arisha Culture. The film Mew. Mew last year. And that setup is basically a replication of the setup I did when I did a DAFA over there with a Babalawi. So... Uh, a dafa is basically like a spiritual consultation with a babalawi um and yeah moving stuff around is not really <laughs> it's not really something you should really be doing without even knowing um but it's interesting you know when people have come into that space and they've moved stuff around and you know when talking about aspects of like, if you have some information or knowledge of these types of spaces beforehand, and then you see the show in a completely different way. So I'd spoken to a social worker a couple of weeks ago that had um, been to a lot of these spaces before, and he was really kind of like taken aback. And it felt like a bit like PTSD had kicked in for him. Because he was explaining to me, like, I've seen so many of these things in crack dens that I'd been to, basically because he had encountered a lot of people that were trying to pray for better lives for themselves. So, and the thing for me, which I knew meant that he knew what he was talking about, was that he singled out the bottles. Mm -hmm. 
the bottles are the real that's where all the magic is stored really and um he centered in on that whereas a lot of people have walked past the crates of bottles and just seen them as like bottles or someone's an alcoholic or whatever but nah nah there's there's layers to all the like little like items that are included in the spaces so for me it's been just really interesting just to see how people have interacted with them um don't worry no one's getting cursed or anything like that if that was running through your head it's nothing like that but like even just um the jewelry upstairs um with the cuban links a lot of people i know you'd asked about the numbers yeah, there's like there's ra- there's like numbers that run through the show. There's words, there's phrases, and I know that like all of them have a backstory. So you just yeah. like you just choose one or two. Um, I'll choose the Cuban links because that was interesting to me. So basically, um, with some of the jewelry that's upstairs, that was lent to me by the jewelers um, for the length of the show, and the two Cuban links that have a four, four, seven and a six on them, they're basically, so they, they were made by this guy called Axe in, um, Northwest London. And he's currently locked up for 20 plus years. So he had made them, but had got bagged by the, the feds before he could actually pick them up. So that's why they're sitting there in, um, in the gallery space as a way of sort of like, you know, really discussing the sort of clientele, that, you know, go to Hatton Gardens Jewelers is not just sort of like bourgeoisie folk or, you know, such like that. There are other types of people that come to these places. And it also links down to, you know, the the downstairs and the type of spaces involved with that. Um, and then also with the numbers, so as in the, the business card, as in like the code mm-hmm. to get into the, the grow room is the birthday of my daughter. So it's like little little things here and there that I've placed in as little sort of totems. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, other other places where numbers have come up, not too sure if I'm trying to remember. Well, there's like, I think it's like 47 or 67 on one. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That's still the axe guy. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think, I, think, I think that one thing that is really... I think special to me about the experience of witnessing your work is that all of these, all of these things have been meticulously, like intentionally planned, mm-hmm. but you don't have to know them or understand them. No. Or, or hear you talk about them. Or, like they don't have to be relevant or like have a prominence in, in the work. Um, which I think is sort of like, on the one hand, you put a lot of effort in to kind of create the spaces just exactly how you want them to be. Um, but that's really for you. Mm-hmm. That's like, so that you can feel good in that space. Yeah, it, exactly that. But also, I know people are coming into the space from completely different, like, cultural backgrounds, social backgrounds, you know, with different agendas on what they want to get out of art. So, you know, I try to at least meet someone on one level at least. So that could be just on a purely visual level. I'd at least try to make everything seem to be aesthetically pleasing. But then, you know, where I would have, um, you know, certain uh, spaces that are involved in, like, some cultural scene. So, you know, where 
making stuff a lot about the the drill scene you'll have some people that are into that or involved in that scene or even participants within that scene then they can come into the show and they'll they'll read it on a completely different Mm -hmm. level and i've had different types of conversations wild conversations with people um involved with those worlds which i found really nourishing and um interesting in a sense of like i don't know it seems to be that at least through making work about the uk drill scene a lot of um sort of people have this sort of fear of engaging with it not necessarily in the sense that they're scared of it but there's this fear of even talking about it Mm. which i find quite weird because then you also get wider society complaining about a lot of things that are born out of the fallout within these these scenes right um and you know um actually i'll touch on that Mm -hmm. why uh i make a lot of work about the uk drill scene um to me is it well it's the zeitgeist culture in london at least especially in the uk as a whole it's literally what most teenagers are listening to the most um it's i think it's really important to actually be investigating what's it's another layer of the city and what's going on in it and I think it's really important to talk about this stuff because, you know, you see a lot of kids involved in it are going through some nuts situations and everyone's kind of seem of just placing it under the rug or turning a blind eye to it. Um, and I feel that that's wrong. I mean, for the debut show that I ever did, I did these um, karaoke videos uh, to UK Drill Music um, and I'd followed like all of the gangs, like social media accounts, all their Snapchats, Twitters, YouTubes, everything that you can think of. And I was basically archiving everything that they were throwing up there because that generation has a completely different relationship to privacy. They just throw everything up there. So, you know, I had every crime under the sun. Um, I literally had a Fed's wet dream. Like, I had, like, footage of bank robberies, murders, stabbings, all sorts. Any crime you can think of, I had footage of it. Um, And, you know, I set a challenge to the audience. I was like, all right, most of this audience are going to come to this show. They're going to have some sort of cursory knowledge of UK Drill, just at the very least. And I know a lot of them chant the lyrics in in their own house. So, all right, then, you're going to do it in public? No. If you're not going to do it in public, why not? Because you know better. So let's talk about that knowing better. And for me also, at that specific time, it was the summer of 2018, a lot of stuff was going uh, going on in the city and a lot of kids were dying. And for me, making that work was like kind of a state of emergency. Like we need eyes focused on this because stuff is going crazy. I mean... I made a five-minute collage because obviously you have to have like a collage visual visuals to a karaoke video, and there must have been in that collage about between ninety and a hundred kids. Within that three months, I made that video. Sixty percent of them were either dead or in jail, and that's three months. So to me, that stuff was pretty important to highlight what's going on. 
and you know I'm not then trying to like you know put myself on like a pedestal again of where I'm saying you know in a preachy way I'm really just trying to shed light on this stuff that's going on in the city and the country as a whole because it's important you know um it's it's important to me to also sort of add nuance to a lot of this stuff a lot of it in the media especially like the tabloids gets reduced to you know like phrases like postcode wars and you know like your culture like chav stuff or whatever in bygone eras and it's way more complex and multifaceted than that and you know when you reduce social ills and problems to their really like root-based common denominators and like the really sort of layman's versions of it there's no way we're ever going to come to an impasse because people are not really open to actually understanding why things are certain ways so you know through the the skill set that I have and sort of the the toolbox I have I'm just trying to use I can make art I mean if I could write policies I'd be a politician or something I'd use my skills to a better degree but what I have at my hands is I can make art so I'm going to use that art to then sort of shed light on this stuff um and also say with the upstairs with um the muted music videos and vlogs um, I've actually had quite a few people come up to me and go why is the sound off and to me I was just like well, isn't it interesting to look at music videos on silent and just focus in on the visuals? To me, that's kind of interesting. You know, they've curated these visuals to go with this soundscape, but they've done it in very specific ways. And with UK Drill, they've now actually got to a point where they're making these amazing visual spectacles. Like, some of those music videos are art. Like... And for me to see within the space of when I made those karaoke videos in 2018 and now you get like four and a half years later and then you'll have a kid from Yellow Brick in Peckham rapping inside of a glacier in Iceland and then you'll have a kid from uh, called Millions from Birmingham in Nairobi having, you know, tribesmen bless him in the song, in, in the song and the visuals and then you see all this like CGI involved where you'll have that Hype Williams wished he could have had in the nineties. Um, and these crazy videos. And to me, one on one hand, that's a real celebration of where these kids have really managed to just turn nothing into something really amazing and make careers for themselves and actually escape that, the lives that they were involved in previously but on the second hand, you have to also deep that you're now watching these crazy visual pieces that are expressing a lot of hyper-violence and a lot of graphic stuff. And even as an audience member, you're consuming that and you're taking that in. And what does that actually mean? Because all that's happening with this uh, scene is that a totem of popularity is based on pushing the line further. And some of those videos have been taken some crazy lengths. And for me, at least is also, I'm questioning, well, where do we go and where is it going? This is, this is 
new territory, especially for UK rap. We have no idea where this is going. And on one hand, it's exciting because you've seen all these kids manage to like make something of themselves, as I said. But then on the other side, it's scary as fuck because those dangers that are involved with that lifestyle are still there. Can I ask a slightly challenging question? Go ahead. So there is a kind of like somewhat learned uh, like inclination that because it's a bit exciting but it's also really scary mm-hmm. that sharing that is a risky thing to do oh yeah so in the process of like i'm going to share this and try and have a conversation about it in art spaces in my work in this kind of exchange which is you know not about uh solutions like what what is it about to, to share those well exactly that's the, and, and that's an impasse I'm not afraid to say that I have reached mm. a full foregone conclusion on that's also what I'm investigating on and aspects of the show where I'm really trying to investigate the system making involved with a gallery space mm. you know what is it to put all of this stuff within a gallery space is it even worthwhile doing that mm. you know I I don't shy away from that being a question that's actively being asked of me mm. as an artist, as well as also putting image, images like that of uh, other black folk out there into the, into the ether mm. as such. Um, I'm not shook of life. So to me, um, I take on those challenges. Mm-hmm. I think it's the, the pros weigh the cons in this regard, mm. in the sense of, you know, it does mean something to put a grow room um, in the ICA for its history and what it is as a place. And also, you know, to put spaces like this that, you know, people that usually frequent these spaces would hardly ever come here mm-hmm. and, you know, offer our invitations to them to come. Um, you know, the past couple of years I've spent trying to figure out how to, like, defeat the fabled four white walls of the gallery space. It's, you know, it's not something that I find entirely comfortable, so I'm not asking the audience to be entirely comfortable with it. I'm not even asking the audience to be entirely comfortable with the imagery that they're seeing. I'd actually be more depressed if people were totally gassed Mm. by seeing the stuff that I'm presenting. It's not meant to be pretty. It's fucking horrible and terrifying and scary and it's difficult and intense um i'm not saying it isn't but what i am trying to do is use the mechanics involved with art making so like you know the way that i formulate a space you know say all right then i'll 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 break it down so say with the the showroom upstairs um so you know it's it's it <laughs> so what it's really based on is regent street uh, christmas displays mm-hmm. um you know the winter displays and you know and then i was thinking you know oh yeah it'd be sick to like turn that into a room right and then i was thinking you know when you go to like a boutique and such and they usually have a space that is you know conceptual it's like changes within seasons so i was thinking oh okay all right then let me think about this, you know, 
from a personal standpoint, this is my first show in, a, in an institution, as well as I'm presenting, you know, topics and themes which I think are hardly, discuss, hardly discussed. So I was like, all right, then let me come up with a, a slogan for it. It's like, all right, take it to the next level. <laughs> so I was like, all right, that's what I feel like a space like that would think about this type of thing. And then I was then thinking about, okay, so, you know, in this context of taking it to the next level, what's the most next level space within the art world? Okay, I was thinking about it for a while. And I was like, ah, a free port. Mm. So, you know, that's where the ultimate place where art is stored and sort of like held and yeah so that space is then replicating a free port and you know so when thinking about if I was an audience member coming into this space right it's very dark mm. and it's very intense especially with the UK drill music videos and ageless vlogs just you know sort of a clockwork orange-esque like just being shown to you without any consent (laughs) so you know then that meant all right then so how do you then sort of balance this out this level of intensity because I do want to have an intensity to it but I don't want it to be so overwhelming that people kind of tap out and just you know just you know just don't even engage with it Mm. so I was like okay then well you just make it spacious and minimal so someone can actually freely navigate through the space when someone feels like they they have space to move around it can be sort of a relaxant Mm -hmm. you know also with the scent as well that was made in it yeah so i think you know i would like to to, for you to talk about the collaborate the many many collaborators yeah yeah because yeah i think some people don't even really know the levels right (laughs) um yeah so as you can see with the jewelry there that was a collaboration with a jewelers which is the real hat and gardens jewelers um and yeah the lengths we had to go to to even present this stuff so for the opening night uh abton he's a guy that owns a jewelers he he allowed us to show the crazy jewelry that they had so they had like uh an extra security guard for the just that one night and you know all the legal teams had to sort stuff out it was crazy um and in the end for that night i think there was nearly about two million pounds worth of jewelry that were in the jewelry cabinet like that one chain the bg chain that was like 250 grand just by itself and like there's two stones in the center of each letter that are like 50 grand each, um, which is nuts to think about just being that close to that amount of like money and currency and like wealth um, and assets. Um, you have uh, also Ezra, Ezra Lloyd Jackson, he um, helped, uh, well, he made the sense for me. So we collaborated in um, thinking about, you know, uh, we, we've done it before in the sense of like replicating certain smells. So we replicated for this show and uh, the one in Two Queens uh, in Leicester last year, the the smell of um, Stardog weed. Um, 
because if anyone's ever tried to buy weed in London, you're, you, you've been a regular acquaintance with Dog Dog and been very disappointed you was as well. And the same breath. So it's like the modern version of like skunk and cheese and such. And it's not a pleasant smell. Um, but we've also um, taken it to a different level with, say, upstairs. So in the showroom, um, I was trying to think about, you know, just phrases and words that I feel are come to mind when thinking about a hat and garden jewelers and, you know, obviously money being one. So with the showroom, we replicated the smell of money. And then um, in the manager's office uh, slash VIP room, um, we tried to come to an idea of what success would smell like. <laughs> apparently it smelled good because on the opening night a lot of the guys there were trying to douse themselves with it <laughs> try and bless themselves in a way I guess um, you also have Sugar Vision which uh, guys in the crowd there eh? um, so they helped uh, they basically built the grow room and every aspect of it in the back um, with an crazy amount of meticulousness involved like i heard some stories about when they opened up the back of the truck and there was all the plants there and it and it stopped traffic <laughs> and apparently someone tried to jump on the truck and try and take one and um when it got stopped uh and they was like what are you doing that and apparently the person was like oh you know everyone loves plants <laughs> so yeah <laughs> but yeah their their efforts are boy far and beyond um, helping to build that grow room. I couldn't have done that at all without their help um, at all. And they built it to such a, a degree of detail. It's crazy. Um, and then also you have Rose, who helped make that, um, you know, that uh, pad, the the silicon skin pad um, with the bandana scarification on it for the, the jewellery to be sat on. And um, Ashley Holmes, a dear friend of mine, amazing artist, who helped uh, me build the the soundscape, the playlist that plays in the grow, grow room. Um, we basically replicated one of our conversations about music and like trading songs and such, and then offered that out to the audience because you know I was thinking about you know if you've ever been in a bando or a trap house or whatever, you know you got to work, but then you've got to have like a soundtrack to that. So you will be playing music in that space. So, you know, um, all these collaborations that I did just added to the dimensionality that comes with these spaces and these works, you know, it's, it's the little details that take it the extra mile and really make it feel like they're lived in spaces and spaces that are realistic and to me, that's it's extremely important. I mean, if someone that... It has to be as real enough for people that have been to these spaces to then really get flashbacks to being in those spaces. That's when I know I've done the space justice. Um, and to me, that's also kind of a duty to myself and to those people that I'm talking about. Um, a, a sort of an example of this would come in the form of I had a conversation with gallerists. I'm not going to mention the name. And um, I meant I'd made a work last year at VO Curations, which had real drugs in it. 
which could have got me a few years in prison if allegedly allegedly uh, but the gallerist had then an arts and they come to me and said you know there is you know there is something to be said about you know faking it and sort of like using a fake prop and to me i was like that defeats the whole magic and idea of making the work you know the people that i'm talking about you know where i'm getting this stuff from they have to go through a whole ton of stuff i feel like i'm cheating them if i'm talking about the lives that they're going through and then i'm half arsing it by then presenting a fake version of it or a bootleg version of it that don't make sense to me so we i'm really glad you touched on this because my kind of final question i wanted to ask you Mm. about was this relationship between like your fascination with fronts Mm -hmm. and this like relationship to authenticity the authenticity of blackness the authenticity or the fakeness of your positionality in relation to these things um people come away asking questions about whether or not this is real or whether or not the weed is real, which is, on the one hand, kind of an interesting line of thought if you have something interesting to say about it, but yeah. also kind of beside the point. Beside the point, yeah. Um, and ultimately, it's like a front of a front. Yeah. In a front. Yeah, there's... Um, <laughs> yeah, there's so, <laughs> you know, but I just... It's interesting, this, like, rejection of authenticity or conversations around that or, like, this clinging to authenticity in some ways, mm-hmm. but also you actually have quite a loose relationship with it because it it only matters to you. It doesn't really matter whether or not people go away with a particular idea of whether or not it is. It matters for you personally to kind of, like, do that justice. Yeah, there, it, it comes in a sense of... It comes in the sense of, like like I was saying, a responsibility to, you know, the source, you know, um, the source of, like, the topics that I'm talking about, the people I'm talking about, there's a responsibility to that. But then also, um, you know, a lot of this stuff, you can't really fake it in a way that does it justice. Um, a lot of the arenas that I'm talking about involves you carrying yourself with a level of authenticity in order to get to, um, you know, the sort of secret rooms within a weed cafe or even to be given a business card, you have to look the part. And those people can smell fakers. I mean, a lot of them actually still being on the streets involves them trying to be, to suss out who's fake and stuff because they have to look out for undies. Um, just in one in one example... Um, undies means undercover cops if you don't <laughs> yeah, I can see your money. not underwear <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. No. but you know it is important to me the the authenticity involved with it but like you said whether someone wholly comes away with the idea of like everything being real or fake yeah, they, they, there's a looseness to that. And I have unfinished thoughts on it, on how I feel about that just as yet. But the more I think about it, the more I don't really care about that, as long as that then means that there's some fruitful conversations involved of it. Where sort of like you don't really 
from my perspective, apply any logic to it, that's when it frustrates me. Um, you know, um, yeah, my relationship to realness, it, it, it's very um, personal and it's not necessarily straightforward or entirely logical, but it makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> and then you see it um, flourish in various ways through the work that I'm making. So it would have made no sense to me to like make the jewelry out of fake diamonds or make it a fake Jesus piece. Um, but you know, other elements to it, maybe I would have felt like in other spaces in the show, I might have had a looser relationship on whether it being real or not, but I'm never going to say. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, Speaking of conversations. Yes. Yeah, so if anyone has any questions, please feel free to ask. Do you think that people are going to try and destroy your art more in the future? And is that something you're looking forward to? <laughs> looking forward to depends on what the work is. <laughs> and whether or not it sits within a space, then I might make a, space, uh, a body of art where some of it is meant to be destroyed and some of it isn't. And I might just play that game and sort of that game of chicken and see what happens. I mean, a lot of it is me exercising my own versions of like OCD and, you know, aspects of control and authorship of an art as being an artist, you know, I'm pretty much a control freak when it comes to my artwork making. A Virgo. Yes, <laughs> very much so. And even to the point of like, where I'm making a work that, you know, I'm anticipating people moving stuff around. And then when I see it moved around, I'm like scratching myself because I'm like, it's not to the right degree <laughs> that I want it. At. But to me, that's exciting because, you know, that helps growth within my art making, you know, allowing the audience to grow with me. I think that's an exciting prospect in, you know, the way I'm making artworks. You know, I'm not professing to be the end article nor do I want to be um, as young as I am I feel like developing the works and the the boundaries that I have with my audience is something that can be really exciting to explore with an audience as long as they're willing to go with me on that journey um, how that manifests I can't say how that is going to happen but I'm looking forward to trying that so you mentioned audiences having conversations. What are some of the conversations that have been had beyond the aesthetics, beyond the you know, sharing on social media? What has come of it in terms of the conversa- like substantial conversation amongst audiences? So yeah, involved with the types of conversations that I've had is one that was really interesting to me was um, discussing with someone that was involved with um, a criminal lifestyle and had, you know, frequented a jewellers and gone to Hatton Garden jewellers and, you know, was making a lot of jewellery for themselves and such. And they were talking about um, how they were kind of 50-50 with the kind of visibility that was being uh, given to, you know, through the show, you know, the linkages that I was making within the work and being really open to like, discussing the pros and cons behind it. 
Um, and then from the end of that conversation that we had, he was very much like, oh, you know, this, this is a great thing. And, you know, he, he, it was, it was more to the point of, I didn't mind him even in the beginning, or even if by the end of the conversation, having a difference of opinion on whether it should or not should be shown. But it was the openness that he had with um, hearing me out from my perspective of why I felt it was important. And, you know, then sharing like a lot of stories that he had about his experiences, especially involving like police and, you know, how he'd made the money and such that so it was a case of you know actually talking to the people that I'm talking about that was that was really important to me and then yeah sorry hey um I wanted to ask about some of the, the spiritual slash religious motifs in your work mm-hmm. um I noticed you've got like you've kind of selected from quite a broad range of like spiritual practices there mm-hmm. um you know the cowrie shells on the tray um the 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 uh jewelry of Tupac as a kind of like Jesus figure and then there's the the, the um, sorry the cushion um, yes. with the lion on it with yeah, the red yeah, gold yeah. and green right yeah, so yeah. there's this broad kind of like uh, uh, cultural kind of like slash spiritual almost like um, religio- religiosity mm-hmm. um, at, uh, showing up in various places and I, I wanted to ask you about that and, 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 and what role you think that serves within the work you're making well, I think it, that's a great question, actually, by the way. Um, I think it really expresses, you know, contemporary society right now and sort of the environment that you find yourself in a lot of the time with these spaces. Like like I was mentioning before, especially like with the weed calves, you find people of a lot of different types of creeds, races, social class in all different types of people from all different types of backgrounds and you know you pick up on a lot of these sort of um cultural signifiers and you know you is you see now especially even within uk drill you see a lot of different kind of cultures bleed into becoming just default culture so you see like a lot of somali culture lately is like really bled into sort of just being mainstream culture now which is amazing it's really cool um so you know where, and I'm a product of this because I don't align myself with a specific religion, but you know, just through growing up and you know, experiencing life, you then you either I've been I grew up in a Christian household, but you know, a lot of my friends are Muslim, and you know, then I'm from Jamaica heritage wise, so you know, that's where the Rastafarianism comes in, and all these different types of aspects of life have bled in, and to be honest, it's just London, you know. Everyone is from everywhere, and everyone is f- more than willing to, to, to back where they're from, and rep where they where they come from, and give you sort of an inkling of their culture and share that with you. So you know, when you go to these spaces, you just see a lot of these different types of things. Um, so to me, it's kind of just a replication of my real life experiences when navigating through these spaces and what is actually natural to these spaces. Um, I also just wanted to know, like, what your examination of gender is, like, Mm -hmm. through this work as well, because, like, these are spaces that you might not necessarily find, like, non-men in Mm -hmm. um, because of maybe, like, safety elements Mm -hmm. and also, like, 
the confronting of like violence um especially in your game mm-hmm. um and that obviously like race comes into that as well mm-hmm. and also um like you mentioned earlier like with the uh two-pack and like what black women would have wanted yes and you also like with dr- the drill scene as well like there's a lot of like gendered um gender-based discussion that comes up in that or lack thereof so lack i just thereof. wanted to know your thoughts on that yeah no that's a really important question to ask especially the lack thereof and sort of the the root one in and sort of the very heteronormative aspect that comes especially say with the uk drill scenes and especially in like the music videos how women are presented within these music videos you know usually usually as like trophy figures or like props or literally like another element of a background um in terms of like navigating through these spaces funny enough in like say places like weed cast is actually kind of 50 50 which is kind of which you would think is really kind of surprising to be honest but it tends to be just as many women in there as men um and some that would be like with other men or like with you know you get crews of women that go there as well um i've tried to in terms of like the conversation of gender lean into it a way that feels the most natural to those spaces so where like say the grow room downstairs i've presented the space as in that i've seen it and i've not tried to you know steer it down a direction of where it leans into like being the only male space as it were um in the aspect of like you know it is all all these spaces are like especially like the upstairs in the Hatton Garden Jewelers is really male dominated and um the only time you really come across women is when they're staff um in various levels um so the only way that I can really answer that in a honest way is I've tried to mimic the spaces as I've seen them and not try to like attack um, specific conversations in a forced way. Cause then I feel like that's really like, it's disingenuous and it does a disservice to actually talking about these conversations in a fruitful way. Um, it is stuff I do want to cover, but you know, with everything, it it requires like a lot of thinking and sort of consideration into it. So, um, I think we're done. <laughs> yeah. You've been R.I.P. Jermaine. Thank you, everyone, for coming and listening to me. <laughs> <laughs>